Father, you are holy and mighty. This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit oscfc.org. That is ours in Christ. And may we see your grace in one another and all over this world. It's in the matchless, powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open them to Acts chapter 11. We're going to focus on really one verse. I'm going to read some more, but Acts 11 verse 23 is what we're really going to focus in on. So we're going to do Acts 11. We're going to do 1 John. We're going to do something 1 John the following week. And then believe it or not, we're almost done with this. Next week, next week, because we did want to do something as we planned on this for Christmas. Pastor Tim will preach a Christmas message next Sunday. So if you're kind of bummed that we're not going to have an Advent series before Christmas, uh, next week's your week. Make sure and be here. Make sure and be online, whatever it is. Uh, But next week's your week. Pastor Tim will preach on the miracle that God became man. And so we are going to do that as well. Well, 2020 has been a year, hasn't it? Uh, It's been hard But in a lot of ways, uh, it's also given us an opportunity to step back and evaluate a great many things. Uh, We've gone on, I think many of us have realized this year, that we have gone on for many years of our lives, decades even, with a set of priorities and goals. And in the last nine months, some of the things that in February of this year, we thought were the most important things for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They were the most important things that we thought we had to have in our lives. Those things have all changed, haven't they? We have a new perspective because of this year, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, we just did Thanksgiving. I'm sure you took extra time this past week to contemplate what you are grateful for. I hope, I hope you did. In the midst of the pandemic and in a tough year, I bet as you thought about what you were grateful for, you also thought about what's most important to you. And I bet some of the things that you realized were most important to you are things that you've taken for granted. It's interesting how many things we thought were important, but now We would trade any one of those things in a heartbeat just for the chance to do some of the things that we've realized are truly the best parts of life. We've not been able to gather together with family or friends in the way that we want to. We're not able to come and to worship as one body in the church family together. We're not able to serve in a lot of the ways that we want to serve other people and bless people and encourage them. And so a lot of the things that we thought were important, we, we, would, we would give those up in a heartbeat just to, just to have some of the things that we've realized are truly, truly important. And that's what happen when, happens when we're really pressed. The things we think are the simplest that we take for granted, we realize are the most important. And in that spirit... I've been focusing and reflecting a lot this year on what it means to be a church. What what does it mean to be 
a church when a lot of the things that we're used to doing, a lot of the programs that we're used to running, a lot of the groups that we're used to, to calling together, a lot of even the, the things that we consider to be core ministry we're not able to do, what does that mean for us? Are we less of a church? I don't think we are. I don't think we are. I think what we've realized is what it means to be a church, what's really important to us are things maybe that we've taken for granted or that we've downplayed, sometimes to our detriment. And again, that's what happens to us when we're pressed. We, we not only are challenged, but we also gain great perspective. Get great perspective when some of the things that we love are stripped away and we're forced to focus on the truly important things. So I've been asking that question. What does it mean to be a church? But then fundamentally, what does it mean if, if we have to know what, what a church is, we have to know what a Christian is because churches are gatherings and groups of Christians bought by the blood of Christ, gathered together for the worship and praise of his name. So at a fundamental level, this year has also caused me to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? And wouldn't you know it, as I prepared for this week, I saw in Acts 11 a great answer that I've never seen before to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? Great, great answer in Acts 11. When I laid out this sermon series, I wanted to talk about the church in Antioch. I love the church in, in Antioch because they were a passionate, spiritual, generous, God-loving group of people. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect church. We're not one, your friends don't go to one, and there wasn't any in the New Testament either. I hear people say all the time, I wish we could just be like a, a Bible New Testament church. Folks, New Testament churches were all messed up. There's a couple of better ones, but all of them had their issues. So there's no such thing as a perfect church. Every church is deficient in some way. But if you told me we could be like one church in the Bible, Antioch, hands down. I love the church at Antioch, so I wanted, to, I wanted to talk a little bit about this church. And as we'll see in these verses, Antioch's a great church. They've got a lot of great things going on there. But if we're asking, what is a church? And then fundamentally, what is a Christian? Antioch's a great place to answer that question because it was in the church of Antioch that people were first called Christians. And so if we're going to know what is a Christian is, we, we, we better go back to the start. Well, where are people first called what we are? And what can we learn from them? So let's read Acts 11. We're focusing on verse 23, but I'm going to start reading at verse 19. Acts 23, verse 19. Or Acts, sorry, Acts 11, verse 19, our concentrating verses, verse 23. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. So what this is referring to when it says the persecution that arose over Stephen is that's talking about Acts 7. In Acts 7, here's what happens. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead, last week we talked about his death, he's resurrected, he's brought back to life bodily, he appears to hundreds of people. Sometimes very large group, many hundreds of people at one time. Sometimes it's smaller groups, Sometimes it's, it's just a few people. But the message he has for every person 
is the same. He rises again, he shows his power over the grave, and the charge is, my grace is for everybody, is for everyone, so go tell everybody about it. That's what Jesus tells his followers. My grace to save from sin is for everybody, so go tell everyone about it. Here's what he says in Acts 1.8. This is right before he ascends into heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Judea and Samaria were wider um, circles of geography around Jerusalem. And then Jesus is lifted up into heaven after he says that he's lifted up bodily. He remains in the body. If you want to know where Jesus is right now in what he's doing, he's in heaven. He's reigning with the Father at his rightful place as the one who has defeated death and triumphed over the devil. And he will one day return very similar to the way he ascended. He will return bodily. The Bible tells us that his return is imminent. That means soon. We don't know exactly when, but we should live as though he's coming back at any moment. And the mission he gives his followers is spread good news wherever you are and radiating out from there. That's why we do what we do here in Wheeling. It's why we partner with missionaries in our local area and groups in our area. It's why we have people around this nation. It's why we're part of a denomination. It's why we send missionaries around the world because we want to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to obey Acts 1-8. We want to be an evangelistic people. Evangelism is telling good news. So that starts. That's where the church starts in Jerusalem, and it starts among former Jews. The church grows rapidly among, that's who the first believers in Christ were, were former people from the Jewish nation. So it starts with a few dozen people, soon it's a few hundred people, soon, very soon actually, it's several thousand people there in Jerusalem. As the church begins to make quite a ruckus in the city, as they begin to transform the lives of people, their gatherings get larger and larger, more public and more public. It's more known that there's a Jesus movement happening. Just like it happened with Jesus, the Jewish leaders became angry at his followers. And so they begin to target them. This is very similar to what they did to Jesus himself. They begin to make life miserable for them. They're spreading lies about them. They're harassing them. Believers are thrown in jail for preaching the good news of Jesus. But what this does is it only emboldens the disciples. Eventually, what they do is they focus on a man named Stephen. Stephen is known as a holy, devout man. He does wonderful and miraculous things in the name of Christ. And the rulers spread lies about Stephen and his ministry. And they question him. And when he is questioned, he begins to preach a better sermon than I'll ever preach. And for that, he is killed, which is the beginning of a plan, a coordinated effort to persecute believers in Jerusalem. And so the church scatters. That's what Acts eleven nineteen is referring to. The, the church scatters. People go out from Jerusalem. Now, really quick, two things about the church and persecution. We shouldn't want persecution. We shouldn't go looking for it. 
But in the providence of God, historically, when you study the movement of the church, persecution has had a way under the mighty hand of God. It's had a way of spreading the gospel in a way that favor among worldly powers, governments, never has. So in other words, the most powerful witness of the church has always come, always come when believers press into the power of God, not when they seek favor with the powers of this world. That's something we learn from the scriptures and the history of the church. The second thing is after this persecution begins, we see ordinary men and women spreading the gospel in significant ways. We don't even know the names of the people who went north to Phoenicia and Cyprus and to Antioch. They just said they went north. Regular people can spread the gospel. Regular people can go out and share the good news of Jesus. Okay, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists is another word of saying Greeks. These are people who lived in the same part of the world, but they are non-Jews. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. Remember what it said in verse 19. They went, they went forward, but they only preached to Jewish people. Now some are preaching to other people. 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, and all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose. That's our key verse. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and they exhorted them and remained faithful and steadfast to the Lord in purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul is Paul, the apostle Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, just a bit of historical history, how you come down from Jerusalem to Antioch, I said they went north, that's not the way we speak. Jerusalem is very high up in elevation. When you talk about going down to Antioch, that's what they mean. They went down in elevation to Antioch, just in case you're wondering. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so I've been asking for the past few months, what is a church and what is a Christian? I love the way Acts 11.23 answers this question. I don't know if I've ever seen this before. So if, in verse 25, Antioch is the place the people were first called Christians, let's look close by and say, well, what is a Christian? Then if this is where people are called, those, what are they? At its core, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I love it. Here's what Barnabas comes to Antioch, where people are first called Christians, and when he got there, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, 
he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain steadfast and faithful. When he saw the grace of God. I could give you a definition of what a Christian is. It could be large and intricate, and it could be robust. But I love what it says here. I mean, to be a Christian, there are a lot of things. There's belief and there's, there's doctrine in what it means to be a Christian. So you have to believe that God is triune. You have to believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons in one being. You have to believe that to be a Christian. You have to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God incarnate. You have to believe that to be a Christian. We have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have to believe that you must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to be saved from your sin. That's all belief and doctrine. You have to know all this. So what is a Christian? A Christian's one who believes those things. You have to be growing in holiness to be a Christian. Romans 12, 1, I'm going to talk about this later. Be transformed through the renewing of your mind. You have to have a new kind of mind to be a Christian. Colossians 3, you have to put to death what is earthly in you to be a Christian. Theological things, active things in being a Christian. Let's not forget the posture of a Christian. You have to be loving to be a Christian. 1 John 4, 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Who does not love does not know God. So yes and amen to all of that. There are doctrinal things. You have to believe certain doctrines to be a Christian. You have to be renewed in your mind and you have to put to death the earthly to be a Christian. You have to be, you can't be a Christian if you are unloving. You don't know God that way. Yes and amen to all of that. But I love the simple explanation of what confronts Barnabas when he arrives in Antioch. He sees the grace of God. Christians are those who others can see the grace of God in. Yes, there is doctrine. Yes, you must grow in holiness. Yes, you must love. But all of that is wrapped up. Christians are those who others see the grace of God in. Can you imagine of all the things you could ever do in your life, if somebody were to say that of you, it would be the most important thing you've ever done. To say, when I look at you, them, this person, in them I see the grace of God. I don't just hear about the grace of God. They don't just try to give me things. But in them I see with my own eyes. It's I can perceive it through nothing that they have to do except to be who they are. That they are evidence of God's grace in their life. If that were all I was known for in my entire life, it would be not only more than enough, but it would be everything to say, wow, in, in him I see the grace of God. I see God at work. I see God's mercy evident. I see the one who is all-powerful, yet who loves the broken and the lowly. I see that happening in this person. And so of all the things we could say, 
What is a Christian? It is one whom the grace of God is seen in. So I began to ask, well, what is it about this church in Antioch? What is it about these people that Barnabas saw this in? He got there and he saw it. I came up with four things that I see in these verses. How do we display, how is the grace of God seen in us? Four things from these verses. Number one, among Christians, sin is confessed and forgiveness is embraced. Sin is confessed and forgiveness is embraced among Christians. Barnabas went to get Saul, again, who is the apostle Paul. And Paul comes and teaches for a year. Listen, I could do this from every paragraph of one of Paul's letters, and we have many of them in the New Testament. But at the heart of Paul's message is that every person has violated the holiness of God and deserves destruction, but God is gracious to the uttermost, and he offers forgiveness to anyone who asks for it. This was the drum that Paul beat in his ministry. He lived, he was poured out, he said, to make that message known. Everything about his purpose and his being was to tell people that you deserve destruction, but in Christ you have received mercy and favor that Jesus Christ died so that you could live. He suffered the death that you should have so you get the life that he was due for the holiness and perfection of his life. And so if Paul taught for a year in Antioch, I think that's what he taught on. I think that's what they talked often about. Christians among us, the confession of our sin and embracing the grace and forgiveness of God should be normative. Your witness is far more powerful. You are far more encouraging if you are one not trying to be known as perfect, but one who regularly admits that you fall short of the glory of God and so are desperately in need of his forgiveness, but walk in it daily having heard, received, and living in the good news that God is for you in Jesus Christ. And so how do we do that? Among us as Christians, we should regularly be confessing sin to one another. Now, that doesn't mean in the public meeting we're just going to have a time where you all stand up and kind of list your sins for the week, right? That would be hard. But you should have those in a group, friends, somebody who you can regularly be talking with and saying, I have Sin in my life. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It also says that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. So you should have somebody that you can confess your sin to. You should have somebody that will speak to you the mercy of God. And we can walk in newness of life because it is ours in Christ. We should be a sin-confessing, forgiveness-offering, and loving group of people. I think that's what was happening in Antioch. That people brought their sin to the cross, knew it was forgiven, and lived in newness of life. So that's number one. Number two, 
among Christians, faith and generosity are the norm. Faith and generosity. A man named Agabus comes and prophesies about a famine that's going to strike the known world, but particularly in Jerusalem. And so the believers in Antioch give money to be sent with Barnabas and Saul for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. I just want you to hear how generous this is, but how faithful this is. This, the famine is not yet happening. Somebody in the church has just said it's going to happen. They exhibit an incredible amount of faith when they say, somebody says a famine's going to happen. And they go, oh, famine's going to happen. We better give money so that our brothers and sisters would not suffer. That is a load of faith to give of your money before the tragedy has struck so that others might be blessed and taken care of when it comes. Folks, I wish I could tell you the pandemic has been an incredible opportunity to see among Christians the generosity of looking out for one another in the church. I can't give you many details, but early on in the pandemic, uh, uh, part of somebody in our church just very generally, not even specifically, made it known that, that they were concerned about a need coming up. Didn't ask for help, didn't, didn't solicit it, just said, hey, hey pray for us. And uh, another person contacted me and said, I just read that and the Lord moved in my heart. I, I want to give a significant sum of money um, to, to this other person. I'm sorry, I have to be general and vague with this. Um, but I want to do it anonymously. I, I just want to know that the Lord has provided for them. They didn't even ask for it. The Lord is just going to meet their need in this way. And it was so encouraging to watch this happen. The person, I, I knew who both parties were. I think I might be the only one. And, um, and, and uh, there might be a couple of others, I guess, we have to account for it in some way. But, um, but they, we got to watch somebody say, well, how do I thank somebody for this? And I, and I basically was able to say, you can't. They don't. They don't want. They don't want the thanks. They 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 want you to know that this is from the Lord, and so you, you can praise God for meeting your need, faith and generosity, in the midst of significant need. And this was this was back in I think April. I know we're still in this place, but remember where the economy was at in April. Remember where a lot of people wondered what their jobs were doing in April. Remember what a lot. Remember what was happening. This was we 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 seem to have at least a little bit more understanding of what this is doing financially. This was back when we were not sure what was going to result. This was a risk for this person to give, and uh, incredibly incredible blessing. Just really humbling to, to watch happen. Faith and generosity are the norm among God's people. So how do you do this? How do you be faithful and generous? You look for needs and pray for opportunities to meet them. You look for needs and pray for opportunities to meet them. It doesn't have to be significant things. People are blessed in small ways. It doesn't even have to be a gift, of, a financial gift. But just look for, pray and ask God for opportunities to bless other people and by faith walk in that. Third thing, among Christians, there's always room for more people. There's always room for more people among Christians. So again, what did Barnabas see? Many people in Antioch 
are having their lives transformed through the gospel, and among this group, they want in. This is what happens when people truly experience the grace of God. When people see God's grace evidenced in your life, they will see a transformed mind and a transformed heart, and they will want in on that. And Christians are people who say anybody can get in on what we have here. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most inclusive news in the entire world because you can't name a person who's ever lived who the grace of God has not been available to. There's always room for more people. So we should be looking for people to bring in on this, to get in on this. We do that by looking for the hurting and the broken around us, by looking for the lost and the struggling, and telling them about the good news of life in Jesus Christ, of peace and hope in Jesus Christ. We don't need to make false promises. Folks, you don't need to make false promises. Like, all your problems will go away. Everything's going to be fine if you have Jesus. Most people, when they're struggling, find it greatly comforting to know that God is near to them in their struggle. Even if the struggle continues, God is near to them. So anybody can have the grace of God. And Christians are people who go out and look for more people to bring on in. Finally, fourth thing. Among Christians, diverse people are unified around Jesus. In Antioch, Barnabas saw something that he hadn't yet seen. Jewish people and Hellenists, non-Jewish people, Greeks, coming together to worship God. Antioch was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. It was a trade and commerce center. Do you know where diversity gathers in our world? Big cities. Listen, I don't think I need to go out on much of a limb to say, go to, go to most small towns. You don't see a ton of diversity in small rural towns. You see diversity when you go into big cities where commerce and business happen. But you know what you also see in big cities? Massive gaps between the wealthy and the poor. You see ethnic groups. You see racial, racialization. You see all of these things that the world tries to use to divide people up and say they're different. They're, they're other than us. But in the church, those walls and divisions are broken down. Counterculturally, people come together, rich people and poor people, different people of different ethnic backgrounds, people with different education levels, people of what we consider different races, people who grew up in different kinds of families, people who at one time practiced different kinds of religions, people who have put their hope in different things, all come together around Jesus Christ and they worship God. Folks, churches are peoples where diversity is met and where diverse people are gathered because we all come together under Jesus Christ. We have different kinds of jobs. We have different levels of education. 
We make different paychecks. We vote differently. We celebrate differently. We grew up in different kinds of families. But we are here because of Christ. And God is doing a great thing. The church has the opportunity, if we will only seize it, to be something so revolutionary in our world that people wonder, well, what happens there where all those different kinds of people get together and they have commonality and fellowship and they love one another? Not just tolerate one another, not just are willing to stand together, but love one another, enjoy one another, the truest meanings of fellowship they have together. So Christians are those who confess sin and know the grace of God and forgiveness. We are those who faith and generosity abound in. We're we're those that know that there's always room for more people, that more people can always get in on this. And we're people who are diverse, but we come together in unity under our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. There's a verse in John 14, 12 that I was thinking about this week. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. How does God spread hope? How does he spread joy around the world in him? Here's the answer. This is what Jesus is saying. He does it through you and me. So when Jesus was on earth, this is what he means in John 14. When he was on earth, he by choice inhabited a body. He took the omnipresence that was his prior to that in heaven. Omnipresence means the ability to be everywhere all the time. And he voluntarily gave that up for a time. And instead, he was one man in a single body. And in a great sense, that limited him because he could only be one place at one time. A few days ago, my my daughter, my older daughter, asked me, why did Jesus come to Israel and and not someplace else in the world? I said, well, I had a few answers about that. It's where God's people were. It's the land that... God promised to Abraham, that kind of thing. But ultimately, I had to say, I'm not sure. I I guess that God thought that was best. But it did get me thinking about that God, when God came to Israel, when Jesus came to Israel, he was just in Israel. That's the only place he could be at that time. But now, it doesn't have to be that way. The good news of Jesus doesn't have to be limited to just one place and one time because followers of Jesus can take the good news of Jesus everywhere at the same time. That's why we do what we do in Wheeling and in this surrounding area. That's why we're part of our denomination. That's why we're part of missionary work all over the world. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you will do greater things than even he did. He said, how can you do that? How can I do greater things? That's what Jesus meant. When he goes to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in each Christian. 
so that as Christians go out all over the world, the message of Jesus Christ can be being proclaimed all over the place, all over the world, all the time. Now, there are places that have been relatively saturated with the good news of Jesus. And there are still places in the world where there are people groups where his name is not known. The gospel has never been proclaimed in those places. That's why we sing that we're going to do this until the work is finished. The work is not done. There is still more proclaiming of the gospel. There is still more hope to spread. The the work that was begun at the persecution of Stephen that God used, the work that the church in Antioch, which is where Paul and Barnabas launched their missionary, where, where Paul launches his missionary journey from, that is still being done. Now, none of us is greater than Jesus. We can't save. But when he lives in us, when his grace is seen in us, The good news of Jesus can simultaneously be spread all over the world. That's incredible, incredible, an incredible thought, and we get to be a part of it. One last time, the way we do that is by confessing our sin and embracing forgiveness, by being a faithful and generous people, by inviting people to come in, And by knowing that God wants to reach people of all kinds in all places. What an incredible thing. So we'll just end here. Is the grace of God seen in you? If you don't, I I don't know. Ask God to show you. Ask for the encouragement of other Christians. But if you are one who's saying, God, use me to show the grace of God to other people. I believe by faith he will answer that prayer. Pray and ask. Pray and ask for opportunities to bless. We can be those. You can be one. Many of you have been to me. I praise God for you. I love this church. You can be those who the grace of God is seen in. Let's pray. God, our prayer is simple. May we be people who the grace of God has seen in. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.